Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of the official Cello Toys podcast on Grapple Arcade. I am Pablo and I have with me returning to the podcast, I am glad to say he is columnist, author and host of the new show on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, Shut Up and Wrestle. He is the, well, the, the greater Brian Solomon. See what I did there? Yeah, I did. Thank you. That was a, that was a nice introduction. It's been a while. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, it, it, greater probably isn't a word in that's in that context, is it? Greater. Um, I'll take it. I mean, I would prefer greatest, but that's okay. <laughs> um, See, when you heard us on the Cornet podcast, you know, you saw that Jim was like trying to differentiate between the two Bryans, right? He kept going, you know, uh, he kept like saying our full first and last name so as not to confuse. <laughs> um and you know next logical step after being on probably the most listened to wrestling podcast in the world you're now back on the official cello toys podcast with uh your old buddy and friend pablo which i'm i'm, I'm honored uh about right. so and you were on the uh the uh, jim corner experience was it the experience of the drive-through um it was the experience it was the, the experience the main, the main one yeah yeah um yeah. of course and uh jim had uh read your uh book uh your biography on the original chic which is uh due out very soon um and it gives it glowing reviews and it's not easy to please someone like jim Cornette. and it's also not easy to have jim learn a lot of stuff from a book as well because he knows everything and uh it was right. a great interview that's what got me i i kind of was hoping he would enjoy it but i also didn't presume to think that I, I kind of assumed he probably knew most of what was in there, you know, especially the wrestling related stuff. And, um, you know, I had to work hard to get it into his hands, you know, because he's very famously technologically, um, you know, blissfully ignorant. And so <laughs> we had to, I printed it out. I went to Staples, which is, I don't know if you have it over there. It's an office supply chain here. Mm -hmm. I had to print out two full reams of printer paper uh, to get the entire book, bind it, ship it to him, to his post office box to get it in his hands. But it was, it was well worth it. Cause I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm just very flattered and honored that he's taken to helping because it's one thing to really enjoy the book and like it, but then to have enough confidence and goodwill to actually say, I'm also going to publicly endorse this book. That's a whole different thing. And I'm super grateful. I, I could never say thank you enough. And, and Jim doesn't uh, conduct many interviews generally as well, uh, especially with right. someone who he doesn't have an extensive history with, uh, you know, and so when you printed it out, was it front and back or was it, uh, it was all single pages of the text. So, I mean, I'm guessing it was about as nearly as tall as John Gonzalez by the time you finished printing. Well, it's 400 pages plus in print. It's going to be. So on these pages, I mean, it was like probably about this thick <laughs> legitimately. Like it, I had to That's just, about a foot. this is an audio podcast. Yeah. About literally oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It was, it was about a foot thick and it was just like a cube of paper basically and it was so big that they couldn't bind it into one book it had to be two bindings two separate things which leads me to think i, I can't totally remember but i think it was single-sided i think yeah. um maybe that's part of the reason why but you know it was the raw manuscript not in layout form not with photography 
you know, we've we've corrected and changed some things even since then. So I'm hoping it's even better than what he got. And by the way, I should say that it's called Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And it is the biography of the Sheik, Ed Farhat, April uh, 12th. It's uh, and, and we'll talk about that more at the end of the uh, show as well. And um it, you know, after listening to that interview, uh, you conducted or Jim conducting to conducted with yourself. It's unbelievable how much effort that you would have had to have gone through to research someone like the Sheik, who is notoriously or was notoriously secretive about his, uh, you know, about his life. And and also you had issues even trying to get information out of family members and uh you know, I, I can't imagine the level of uh, detail that you had to go to. But like you say, you found uh, his uh, army records and everything as well. And um, was was the kind of like a, a, a game plan when writing this book that you had to find his army records, etc. Or was that stuff that you kind of stumbled across as you were writing the book? Well, that was sort of one of my goals from the beginning is I wanted very much to have as much of the personal real life background as I could possibly find. So, you know, I, cause I, the way I felt like the wrestling stuff, it's out there. It's, it may not all be organized together in an easily referenced source. And you may have to really work hard to find everything, but a lot of it's out there, you know, where did he wrestle? What did he, who did he be? Where did he work? It's, it's the other stuff about his life that there would be often times where I would be finding things that I knew that nobody knew about. Like I said on, on Jim's show that I would be looking at a fact or something and saying, I don't think there's a single living person on this planet that knows this besides me, including his surviving family, like things about, like you said, his military record, like discovering that, you know, Hey, listen, thank, thanks for his service and more power to him. But he did exaggerate his military record a little <laughs> bit when he was putting himself over to other people. So I wanted to get down to the nitty gritty of that and what was real. And, you know, I discovered that he was only 19 years old and he was driving a tank, you know, in World War II. He had told people that he was the commander of a tank division, which obviously is highly unlikely at 19 years old. Um, also, he got there five weeks before the German surrender. So, I mean, again. He did see combat. And, and, and of course, I mean, it's, it's more combat than I've ever seen in my life. But <laughs> but he was he, he, he was there and the Germans surrendered about five weeks later. And then he spent the next year still in Europe, just kind of on cleanup duty. And one of the things that he did is that he actually started wrestling, but like in the army, you know, wrestling and competing. Um, again, this is something that no one would know about because he wouldn't want people to know about that part of his life. So that's the kind of stuff that it was important for me to get in the book where it's, it's like truly unknown things. And, and, you know, it must be made clear as well that it's not an attempt at like an expose or whatever. It's just no. kind of a, an attempt to demystify the chic a little bit, but also with facts that you just won't believe, I'm guessing, you know, that, like stuff that makes him even more fascinating uh, overall as a, as a man and as a, as a wrestler. And I know that you, you know, like I say, and you mentioned it on the interview with Jim that you were able to chat to like his son who would happily talk about Ed Farhat or big time wrestling, but wasn't going to talk about the Sheik, which I find infinitely fascinating. Do you think the Sheik had that chat with him 
at a young age and just said, look, you know, there are things that you don't expose about me. Well, I think I think you might actually be thinking of the son of Burt Ruby, who oh, was the sorry. promoter. Okay, but that's no, but that's true. Burt Ruby was the promoter who discovered the Sheik at Farhat, and he his whole thing was it wasn't really a kayfabe thing. He didn't want to talk about the Sheik in particular because I think there was bad blood between the Sheik and his father, who had discovered him and then got sort of pushed out of the business by the sheik you know so i think there was sort of an axe to grind there he told me he would talk about anything in wrestling about his dad about detroit about everything except the sheik but i mean the family was the family was reticent but not for kayfabe reasons they were reticent for financial reasons (laughs) and and i think if they because for a very long time they were talking about doing their own book and this this even goes back to when the sheik was still alive and uh, he and his wife joyce were working on supposedly a book and then of course the sheik died and his family members his wife and his son eddie jr would talk about picking it up again and finishing it and getting it out there hmm. and the, the thing about it was and i even i even knew of one or two people that were rumored to have worked with them kind of been transcribing things and stuff but here we're talking now a man who's been gone almost 20 years his wife gone almost 10 years, nothing happening, no book coming out. Now both of his children are gone, unfortunately. And, you know, it came time where I I just felt like, well, somebody needs to tell this story. Somebody needs to do this book. And they, you know, I think they expected that it would be something like when you make a movie out of somebody's life and the family is like healthily compensated and involved in the creative process and things. But books don't really work that way. You know, there's certainly not as nearly as much money to be made. So anything they were asking of in terms of compensation would have far exceeded what I was getting paid to even write the book, Mm. which is probably about six weeks worth of my, you know, high school teacher's salary, to be totally (laughs) blunt with you. So, um, you know, I think that especially with Eddie Jr., he had uh, some preconceived notions. And I would even explain to him, look, If you want to personally profit from telling your dad's story, of course, I understand that. But then you have to do the book or hire someone to do the book. Mm. This is not that kind of a project. This is my book. (laughs) You know, your dad was a public figure. It's like if I wanted to write a book about Richard Nixon, I don't have to get his family on board to write the book or their permission or pay them. In fact, it might even be a better book if I didn't. So, you know. (laughs) They could do that, but they didn't do that. So, you know, uh, I I couldn't pay them. The only reason I was hoping that they would help is to to keep their dad's legacy alive and to keep his relevance going and to understand I wasn't trying to bury anybody. If anything, I'm trying to to really make him an interesting figure again, whereas I feel like his name has faded quite a bit. But of course, in doing that, you have to confront some uncomfortable truths about someone's life, too. And I'm sure that they wouldn't particularly want to be in a book. But I can't tell the story from my point of view without including some of these details about his life. So do you feel that when the book comes out and the reviews uh, you know, start happening, that there's going to be some backlash or kickback from those who knew him uh, better than most people? Do you feel well, that like people may, you know, it may be those exaggerated stories or whatever. They may say, no, those were definitely true. Uh, or you may have family members going, no, that's definitely not true, et cetera. 
Well, the thing is, um, his family, the people that are still around are fairly young. And they're people that didn't even really know him in his prime as a promoter and, and top flight main event wrestler, maybe the very tail end of it, you know. And so um, the people it's funny you say like the people close to him or who knew him well might dispute things. But the thing is, those are the people, not family, but associates and friends who confirmed these things to me because they were so close to it. So that's why I felt confident in talking about some of these things, because I didn't feel like it was just me reporting some rumors. It was like I had people confirm directly things that were common knowledge within the industry, but not outside of the industry. So I know I'm sure his family, his surviving family members, you know, may take issue with some things, but I hope I, I sincerely and maybe naively hope that they that they take a look at it for what it is and understand that I, I'm really trying to tell the story of a very important person in wrestling history here. And I think that if anything, this book will benefit the Sheik's legacy much more than than harming it. And I really hope that they would just give it a chance because I have absolutely no ill will whatsoever. And I would have happily worked with them on the, you know, interviews and photography and things and, 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 and getting their input on somebody they were very close to. I would have loved to do that, but I, I was prevented from doing that. And I want to be clear on that. I was prevented by financial demands that could not be met. And I have the, I have the messages to prove it too. <laughs> Well, I know you said as well that nothing went in that book without you being 100% certain that it was accurate as well. Which, right. You know, and if more I was be said about some books that I've read. <laughs> right. No. And, 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 you know, sometimes there's the temptation because stories are so good. Mm -hmm. You just want them to be true <laughs> and you put them in. But in my in my case, there were a couple of times where that would happen. And what I do is if I mention it. I will clearly say this is completely unconfirmed. We don't know if this happened, but this was a rumor at the time. And here's another opposing view of what may have happened and things like that. You know, to be clear, this is not a, an indisputed fact. Like I do that in the book. In fact, there was there's a famous story that got repeated a lot. And I think it got started by George the Animal Steel, who was a protege of the Sheik and then, of course, went on to work for Vince. So he bridged both worlds. But there was a rumor that Vince had set up a meeting with the Sheik when he first came into Detroit to start promoting there as part of the national expansion. And basically, the purpose of the meeting was to humiliate him, you know, to get him to beg for a job and this kind of thing over some kind of perceived grudge between him and, and Vince's father. And, you know, I, I, I took a lot of it with a grain of salt and I was trying to piece it together based on different people's accounts of it. Nobody was in the room. I can't even be sure that it ever even happened. However, my suspicion is there was a meeting and it probably because because Vince was working with the crusher. He was working, yeah. you know, with with Paul Bosch. He was bringing in Mad Dog Vashon and people like that to try to get the rub in local territories. So it's very likely that he had some kind of a meeting with Sheik and just didn't work out. You know, knowing what I know about Sheik, he probably made some very unrealistic financial demands, you know, <laughs> of what he wanted and how he wanted to put himself over and things where his time had passed. Yeah. And I think Vince was probably envisioning him more as, 
you know, to pop a few houses, like what he did with the crusher in the Midwest, like do a few big shows and then maybe get like a behind the scenes job, like, like Jack Lanza God or the Briscoes or something like that. Pat Patterson. And I think he probably just balked at that. That's really what I think it came down to. But, but I would always try to differentiate what's fact, what's rumor, you know, so people are clear when they read the book. Uh, one thing that I'm uh, very interested in uh, reading about is his time in Japan near the end of his uh, career, because uh, Chella are releasing Onita, an Onita action figure uh, as well. And I found uh, some of the stuff that you were talking about on Jim's podcast about how he was much older and, uh, you know, he got set on fire and stuff like that. I haven't seen any of that stuff. I'm guessing that stuff's out there. I can imagine it's a little sad to it watch. Um, it is. <laughs> It is out there and it is sad to watch, yeah. but, but I'm still amazed. Like I said, on Jim's show that he stays in character. He doesn't, he doesn't break. I mean, mm -hmm. he's outside the ring. Clearly he's burned. And we know he is because he was receiving serious medical attention and he was unconscious for days afterwards, but he's out there after being in the ring, still throwing fireballs, at people, <laughs> still like taking swings at people. And, and you're thinking this man has to be an unimaginable pain right now. Um, they were not even I, I don't think they were third degree burns, but they may have been second degree burns all over his back. And that's confirmed because I remember I forget who it was. Somebody told a story of running into Sheik and Sabu on an airplane coming back from Japan. And they confirmed that Sheik's whole back was all burnt up. So, you know, that was real. Uh, poor, poor guy. Um, but I mean, I'm guessing, you know probably worth the money he was getting paid uh to like, well it. yeah i mean uh, yeah. like i was saying i'd probably do it myself for ten thousand dollars <laughs> to go out there and work for like five minutes where you're basically standing on the ring apron most of it and 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 they pay you 10 grand before you go through the curtain in cash <laughs> of course you're gonna do it come on <laughs> well b uh, before we get into uh today's uh cello announcements um one thing that i'm kind of interested in with regards to the chic he had an action figure made by uh, the company that made figures for WWE about what 15 years ago now. Uh, I don't, I'm assuming you've seen that uh, figure of the Sheik that's out there. What, was that the one um, that has the blood spots on it? No, no, that was... See, I'm, I can't mention other toy companies. <laughs> no, that one came out much right. earlier on. Around the, <laughs> that, that came out around the turn of... Uh, around late 90s, early 2000s, and they made a lot of classic names. Then... Right. WWE's uh, company took over that uh, licensee and started making the old names themselves. So around okay. 08, 09, uh, a chic figure, because there were various Sabu figures because he was working for the company, and then a chic figure eventually came out. And it looks very good as well, because around that time, uh, that company only had about four different torso choices. There was Super Ripped. There was like cruiserweight. There was Gorilla Monsoon. <laughs> you know, so eventually <laughs> they made, you know, slight muffin top, uh, belly, <laughs> which worked very well for the Sheik. And they got his skin color right as well, because some action figures have been notoriously terrible at having the wrong uh, or an inaccurate uh, skin uh, tone. But uh, with regards to the Sheik, I'm guessing not a lot of, outside of programs, not a lot of memorabilia out there. I mean, did you come across certain artifacts? Are there ring, is there ring gear out there? And were, were there a oh, lot yes. of... With the riots, I'm sure he caused. I'm guessing the lots of newspaper headlines as well. Oh, but there is there is memorabilia of big time wrestling and of the Sheik out there. It's different from, like I'm sure you know this. The big difference between 
collecting memorabilia in the modern age is there's so much mass marketing of merchandise. Yeah. And they didn't have as much merchandise back then. So it's it's more esoteric. But like you mentioned, ring gear. I know people like my good friend Dave Brzezinski, who was Sheik's last manager and I'm a huge fan. He has some of his robes. Oh, there, there are people who have, you know, some some of those camel toe boots and the and the trunks with the camel, you know, like ring worn stuff. Dave has, I kid you not, a tape wrapped pencil with blood caked all over it. And he could tell me exactly what match it was from. You see, that was the kind of memorabilia <laughs> that people collected before toys and things were so available. You had to really think outside the box. But he's got, I mean, I've seen things like um, um, you mentioned something else before. Oh, oh, you know what? They had, they did have prototypical kind of early merch. They were ahead of the curve. So there are um, uh, pennants, you know? And those even carried on. A lot of wrestling companies did them even going into the 80s, like pennants of your favorite wrestlers, mm-hmm. you know, like a little flag. They would do things like that. They they made things like uh, I think they made like a ruler of all things, <laughs> a ruler that had the wrestlers it's on it, things like that. Other people with, you know, not actually, and the, used, you know, the bot. Oh, right. So, yeah, they told me a story. Someone told me a story that get this. They were still thinking they were on their feet, even in the 70s, where there was a show at Kobo Arena in Detroit. It was the first time they brought out the rulers, right, for sale. You could buy these rulers at intermission. Yeah. And they worked it into the main event where the Sheik used the ruler. He broke it off. It was like a plastic ruler. He broke it off to the into a sharp edge. And he was stabbing his opponent with the ruler. And this was supposed to encourage you to buy the ruler, I guess. But there was also the body press, which is pretty famous. They had, uh, you know, back in those days, the the localized programs were pretty elaborate, you know. Mm. And so their program in that whole kind of uh, Michigan, Ohio, Ontario area, it was the quality of a wrestling magazine, pretty much in terms of like pages, stories, pictures, it's gorgeous. And people collect that too. That's a big one too. I know people that have complete runs of it, believe it or not. So yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's really cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Just with this being a figure podcast and with this, you know, and my interest in memorabilia generally, uh, I'm always interested to know what, uh, especially territory stuff, because I mean, I'll be honest, look, from about 1986 WWF to about 1997, you can't move in my house for that. But I understand how mass-produced some of that stuff is and how much, you know, real collectors in uh, quotation marks who collect, uh, you know, stuff from the 40s and 50s and stuff. I totally understand uh, why that stuff is far more historically significant. Uh, than It's a, harder to get, too. Of, you know. without a, well, you say that. I mean, I've got a to tank a can of soda from israel from 1994 <laughs> i do have that so you know and i've only seen one so <laughs> amazing amazing i hope it's kosher <laughs> it hasn't been opened so maybe one day on youtube okay. if I'll, I'll you know get those sweet sweet uh, clicks and drink some of it and potentially have to i'll have the the ambulance on standby for that but <laughs> God. Um, so anyway anyway uh this uh this edition of the child of toys podcast and i'm glad i'm so glad that you're here for this uh, the big announcements for this week coming off the demolition announcement i mean it, it you would think it doesn't get much better than that in terms of uh a tag team release in that retro style 
that late 80s, early 90s, uh, or to mid-90s retro style from uh, WWF. But they are also, Chella are also filling pretty significant gaps of wrestlers and characters who were not made, who should have been made during that time. And the big announcements for this week are Warlord and Barbarian, The Powers of Pain. Now, I did some digging, and I don't know yet if these are going to be released as a double pack or if they're going to be singularly singularly released. Um so do uh, check out cellotoys.net and their corresponding social media outlets for all of that news. But uh, as, as a figure collector, especially of that time, this is a big gap to fill for me. Uh, the Warlord is, I mean, you saw pictures of, them, of yourself. Uh, it's reminiscent of one of the Hulk Hogan figures, just the big, bulky, taller than most people and just, you know, proportionally just... Uh, you know, like a box, basically, because that's how he was built. And uh, Barbarian has the uh, the Gorilla Press uh, hands as well. But as you can tell from Tippy, the designer, he's knocked it out of the park again. And I know that when these eventually come out, they will, and they come with entrance gear as well, that uh, they will look incredible. And, you know, very much needed as well, because there was a recent Warlord figure from the WWE line in his Powers of Pain gear, as far as I'm aware, Barbarian is not signed to any kind of contract like that. So it's one of those deals where you're just going to have to have Warlord without Barbarian for a long time, but not in the Cella style. Cella are delivering. So it's uh, going to be very cool. And I'm, I'm very excited. I personally have those in my collection as well. So let's talk Warlord and Barbarian, Powers of Pain a yeah. little. Um, now, as, as much before entering WWF, as well as other you know, uh, territories, their biggest splash was probably with Crockett. Uh, and I know that they ended up becoming six-man tag team champions with uh, Ivan Koloff, and they were managed by Paul Jones. And uh, the reason why they ended up quitting Crockett, like this huge job, is because Crockett wanted uh, them and the Road Warriors to have a series of scaffold matches where... <laughs> I was a pain would take the bumps. And I'm just like, they never bumped anyway. They're not going to take bumps off scaffolds. Right. You know, it's one of those matches where it just seems like the dream match. And then until it happens, and then it probably may have stunk out the arena, you know, because I think scaffold matches potentially had that risk anyway beyond. I mean, you know, there's the excitement of it. But once, in your opinion, once you've seen a scaffold match, is that kind of it for you? Well, until, that's, you know. That's the reputation of the scaffold match is it's a great concept. It sounds incredible, but in execution, you can't really do much. And I think that's why you don't see them because it's like, okay, uh, somebody's going to fall off this thing. Like that's the appeal of it. But in reality, you know, you can't just throw someone off unless <laughs> you're new Jack, unless you're new Jack, I should say, because yeah. you're going to kill the guy. Right. So it has to be this very carefully orchestrated spot where they're hanging off or they're climbing down. And the thing about that is, you know, you can't, if you do that every time the fans get wise, like you could have like a big one and that's how it ends. And okay. Everybody goes home happy, but then they start to pick up on, on the scam. You know, it's like, well, what we've really got is wrestlers on this tiny little catwalk. They can't actually wrestle. They're scared to death. And you can see it in every scaffold match. They're petrified. You'll see, the biggest, scariest guys 
just freeze up. Like there's a notorious one. It's not the best example to bring up for scaffold matches. It's from WCW, early WCW, when the takeover happened, where it's, um, oh God, I can't remember every party, but it involves stunning Steve Austin and it involved PN News PN as News. well. <laughs> yeah. Great American Bash 91, because I think that's that was the show. Gone. Flair was That's gone. The show. You had to replace right. Flair with the best match that you had. And for some reason, the thought this was gonna... <laughs> that was the we want Flair show. <laughs> right. That's literally what the crowd chanted through the whole thing. But that match is horrible. And Steve Austin, I think, has talked about it as being like the worst match of his whole career. And but it, but it would even happen with the so-called great scaffold matches, you know, and I mean, look at what happened and look at what happened to Jim Cornette in one of those, you know, where he permanently ruined one of his legs. And so it becomes this risk versus reward. What there's plenty of other gimmick matches you could do that don't involve like such a serious risk of death. I mean, let's be very honest here. It's it's a crazy thing. So I mean, that that's probably why you don't see them anymore. But I mean, it's funny about the powers of pain because they were trying to escape essentially getting jobbed out to the Road Warriors. They jumped to the WWF. And then about a year later, they're getting jobbed out to the Road Warriors in the WWF. It's almost like <laughs> they couldn't escape their fate, which which they didn't really deserve because they were a great team, you know? Uh-huh. Well, that's the thing as well. Like everyone, and two WWF fans, I know LOD demolition seemed like the dream match. But in terms of, you know, size and look, it seemed that Powers of Pain being more of a clone of the Road Warriors, that seemed more like the... The dream match and especially in crockett i'm guessing more hard-hitting matches than the lod demolition match because i don't i personally don't recall any strict lod against demolition it was always lod and warrior against uh demolition and well the free members of demolition um maybe they realized it wouldn't draw at that point because there's only so many times you can job demolition out um Maybe it needed just that little bit extra. I'm sure they probably did have matches at that point, just the two of them against each other. But, you know, this is when they were given demolition, the skin tight masks for a little bit, uh, just to really take any kind of luster away from them. And they took away their amazing entrance theme. Um, and they weren't going to be beating Legion of Doom at that point. I think the point of a dream match is where you really, really don't know who's going to win. Otherwise, it's kind of a bit right. pointless. I think they did it maybe on house shows. I seem to remember there were demolition versus road warriors matches uh it might have it was like a hogan flair kind of thing where it's this dream match that they never quite pulled the trigger on but um the difference to me between demolition and powers of pain here's the thing i feel like powers of pain those guys yes visually they were made to look and resemble the road warriors but also their physical dynamic and the way that they worked mirrored the road warriors to a certain degree especially with warlord and hawk there were a lot of similarities there in in their look and their working style but demolition it was more like we need a team that has the vibe of the road warriors that has this kind of like you know uh, uh dystopian future kind of dark and unstoppable image but the actual guys that they picked nothing against it the team itself there's really very little resemblance to the road warriors in terms of how they look, how they work. I mean, Bill Eady was a, was a, an experienced guy by that point. He already had a lot of success with a previous gimmick, the mass superstar, you know, and 
You had Barry Darsa, who had just been a Russian, you know, and both of these guys had experience with other gimmicks. They've been around a while and they just were a very different kind of team to work, to watch work in the ring. So I think that that might've been part of the reason why maybe they just didn't quite gel or something, but I mean, they were clearly Vince's attempt to capture some of the road warriors magic. So when he finally got the road warriors, he felt, I, I think that he didn't need demolition anymore. Which is a shame as well, because Demolition, they had enough about them to get over on a huge level themselves. I mean, you know, the, you know, people forget that Smash was, he, he wasn't as witty as Hawk on interviews, but he was kind of like the colour of the interviews, I think, where Axe was kind of the more dowdy, serious, you know, gruff guy. Yeah. If you get yeah, what I mean. Was- yeah, he was the I'm going to kill you guy and and <laughs> and smash, you know, let's face it. I mean, he got to show a lot more of that side of himself when he was the repo man. He, he was more of like, yeah, like the gallows humor and sort of like the mischievous kind of, uh, um, you know, trickster of the team. <laughs> um, so powers of pain come into the wwf in mid 1988 now demolition had beaten strike force for the tag team titles and martel was out with an injury now whether because i know he didn't have like a hip replacement eventually in 91 or something um he had really bad hip issues and i don't know if this was anything to do with this but tito was wrestling singles matches for a little while with you know various tag team partners against demolition then eventually powers of pain were brought in by tito People don't remember this, and Tito was managing Powers of Pain. Um, there were some TV bits, and it was probably largely house shows, but they were kind of brought in as the enforcers for Strike Force to get their own back on uh, Demolition. But that didn't last too long, and uh, eventually they moved right into their mini feud with uh, the Bolsheviks. And they had that uh, match at SummerSlam 88 where the Baron made his debut, and it's, it, it's such a interesting period that in 1988 mid to 88 it was kind of who else is left in the awa for us to get there's <laughs> <laughs> a lot right. of names came don't get me wrong i mean kurt hennig came in but also uh you know they were bringing in announcers from the awa uh you know ken resnick had come and got oh who was the announcer uh ron trog got ron Tron, rod Trongod. uh he was awa wasn't he i believe he was he yes. was yeah um so they were bringing in everyone by that point. And then, and then, like you say, they even brought in the Crusher for that Milwaukee WrestleFest uh, show mm-hmm. for the Weasel Suit match. So everyone was coming in. Bockwinkle came in and was announcing for them for a little while. I'm always, yeah, Bockwinkle, right. He he got a tryout, basically. a few. He, he was an announcer for a little bit, and then he became an agent for a while. And he, he was a road agent for a while before he eventually went back to the AWA. But um, he, tell me if, if you've ever heard this rumor, the original reason they brought him in was that the million dollar man gimmick was originally intended for him, which I think is a very interesting alternate reality because I think he would have been pretty amazing in that role. It would have been a very different kind of thing. And he would have been back feuding with Hogan, which would have been really interesting. But I think they decided he was maybe a little too old and they had a little, they weren't hundred percent confident that he could pull it off. So they went with DiBiase, but yeah, I mean, there were so many people getting brought in from the AWA at that time. It's true. I've just seen the garden show where Bobby Heenan, I think it's Heenan. He announces Nick Bockwinkle to the ring. Yes. 
and that was his debut. I didn't know he made such a splash because you know how announcers are with debut. It's just they're on camera all of a sudden. But Bockwinkle came to the ring and made an actual entrance, which I found uh, right. fascinating. I think, Sorry. No, no, please. Well, I think sadly to the, to a lot of people, I think Bockwinkle's only major thing he did in WWF was take that bump for the Warrior at Rumble '89 after the uh, after the 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 pose down. Which That's is right. Yeah. yeah, and he was also in that uh, Legends Battle Royal that they had at the Meadowlands Arena, which is one of the great, like, untelevised house show matches, although I think there's video footage of it. I think I- I've actually seen it, if I remember it's, right. I think it's on Hidden Gems now as well, because you get yes. the, the, you get the right. post uh, interviews as well with the kangaroos and everyone else, and obviously that was the, the Battle Royal, why, if you believe Lanny, why uh, Angelo and Brandy had issues with Patterson and WWF for a long time because for whatever reason they wouldn't let Angelo Poffo be in the Battle Royal as a legend. Um, I, I got to give it to Randy Savage because he really went to bat for his dad so many times and caught heat over it. Because let's be honest, I mean, Angelo Poffo was not nearly even in his own time as big of a name as Randy Savage was. He was mm-hmm. a star. But he was not a mega star. And I think that Savage really tried to kind of give his dad the rub in a lot of ways. I mean, from what I understand, that was one of the one of the final straws that made Gordon solely leave WCW when Randy Savage was trying to get his dad. And he succeeded, actually, in getting his dad in the WCW Hall of Fame. And Gordon, you know, had been putting up with a lot of stuff with dealing with all of Hogan's antics and things that he didn't like about what they were doing. And that was kind of the last straw. And the same thing happened with the WWE Hall of Fame, where that was one of the reasons that he wouldn't go in was he wanted his dad to go in like all the Von Erics went in, you know? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, so back to because we're going to go off in a million different. This is what yeah, happens. Sorry. You know? That's what I do. Sorry. Um, and I love hearing this stuff as well. I was so powers of pain they you know they bring in the crush uh sorry they bring in the baron um right and he wasn't there for too long here's a here's a fact uh they come out to a slower earlier prototype of the one two three kids music um that that was their music of summer 88 and they, they, they couldn't have done a better job in the god they were so over his faces um the the Bolsheviks basically jobbed for them. They got squashed in a very short amount of time. Warlord does not take a bump throughout the entire match. And Billy Graham's like really good at going, like, he's still not taking a bump. Like he's got arms bigger than me and all that kind of <laughs> thing. And um, yeah, so, you know, between that and it's unbelievable how over they were, but I guess Demolition were probably getting a lot of face reactions as well, which is what led to the ill-fated double turn at uh, yes. Survivor Series. That was, <laughs> I'm glad you, you described it that way because I remember watching it as a kid and thinking that couldn't have gone the way that they wanted it to go. Like, no. I just remember thinking, because as you know, you remember from seeing it is the, the crowd sides with, with, um, powers of pain and Mr. Fuji. Yeah. And you get this weird visual of a crowd cheering for Mr. Fuji sitting on the shoulders of the powers of pain, which I don't think Mr. Fuji ever heard anybody cheer for him in his entire career. He's like the most evil wrestling character of all time, you know? And that was a total bust. Cause obviously they were going for the other way around. They were, 
they were hoping that you know the crowd would 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 side with demolition but they actually chose to stick with the powers of pain at least on that night and then they slowly got conditioned where they need to be yeah that's the thing having not really seen a lot of 88 uh television i don't know if they were teasing it any dissension or anything like that because it kind of come out of nowhere and uh like you say fuji he hits axe with the cane and joins power and you've got that amazing visual of powers of pain with fuji on their shoulders <laughs> fuji can look right. less comfortable um but <laughs> what else what else are you to think like uh, the wwf crowd i don't think had ever seen a double turn and 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 to be fair it was really convoluted and at the end of a 20-man tag team match and they were probably exhausted by that point as well i mean what was there were there any double turns before that in your knowledge? And, and I mean, I can't think of any in WWF, but it seemed like quite a, a daring thing to try at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. They're they're rare. They're rare, and it's hard to remember off the top of my head. But I mean, I I, it, I would bargain that it had been done many many times in in wrestling before that, but. The, the thing is, you're also dealing with a young fan base. You're dealing with, at that time in 88, a large amount of fans that had only been watching the WWF for a handful of years, especially outside the Northeastern United States. So they didn't have, they maybe weren't as wrestling savvy. They didn't have a lot of wrestling, like knowledge of how, of wrestling tropes and things like that. Like I sometimes think that the fans in other territories who were, maybe a little older or had been watching wrestling a long time and WWF and it wasn't a new product to them the way the WWF was it converting a lot of new fans that they were a little bit I don't want to say smarter because they weren't smartened up but they were a little bit more receptive to the cliches and tropes of wrestling and they res would respond the way you would want a crowd to respond maybe than, than, than this kind of inexperienced fan base that's still learning how to be a wrestling fan, you know? Mm -hmm. well, well, from there, we go into the, the Royal Rumble. And, yeah. I, and, and this Royal Rumble match gets uh, flack for Big John Studd kind of winning it out of nowhere. But I think people have to realize that he was coming back as a huge name. And, you know, in the context of the time, it's not, completely unbelievable to think that Big John Studd could win it, but it wasn't like you won a title match or anything like that, or anything came off winning the Rumble. But for me, I mean, once Hogan gets eliminated, the whole Rumble match dies completely. <laughs> you yeah. know, and I think the crowd are just not into it at all. But you, wouldn't you think that having Demolition and Powers of Pain both in the Royal Rumble, you would have them square off at some point during the match, but they don't. I mean, Demolition, they square off against each other in one of the most classic moments ever in the history of the Royal Rumble. When they did the 25th and 30th anniversary of the Royal Rumble, I, I'm always like, right, bring Demolition out one and two again and have it happen again, but it's never going to happen again, obviously. But um, I, I always have unrealistic expectations for Royal <laughs> Rumble matches, which is why I'm usually disappointed. But... Um, could Powers of Pain to be made to look more like schlubs in that run? Because Warlord held his record of, what, one second when Hogan eliminates him um, just right. so they could do the angle. It, it was like the next year with Michaels. He's in the ring for about 20 seconds and gets eliminated just so Warrior and Hogan could face off. Warlord just happens to be the unfortunate name who gets eliminated by Hogan just so they can empty that ring and then leave two minutes of Hogan and Savage to argue and then boss man to come down. But uh, Barbarian comes out much later and he comes, but well, he comes out after 
Hogan and Savage, etc., are gone. So the crowd are just kind of the dead at this point, basically. Their big names had yeah. already been in. And uh, Barbarian comes down to, I want to say, the final four or five. And I think Brick Martell eliminates him. Um, don't write me letters if I'm wrong on that. But uh, yeah, the for a team that you're trying to push as number one contenders for your tag titles, in you know. But the thing is, as well, do you feel that Demolition and Powers of Pain were unfairly put in a position underneath the Mega Powers and the Twin Towers at that point? It was never going to outdraw that or be on Saturday night's main event in the main events. That's just the the way it is. I mean, ninety percent of tag teams, like like you know, long term tag teams, will never get to be headliners. You know, you have teams like the Road Warriors that did the Steiner Brothers. I would even put New Day in that category. You know, there was in the old old days there was Antonino Rocca and Miguel Perez in Capital Wrestling, the predecessor of WWF, and where they're just as big, but that doesn't usually happen. Tag teams are in their own world, but then you have these sort of like super tag teams, right? Like the mega powers were, and, and, or, or I don't know off the top, Shawn Michaels and triple H or things like that, where it's like, they're perceived as being on another level. They're not even general. They're, let's put it this way. They're so big that they're not even interested in the tag team title. Like you never heard the mega power. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. The mega powers were never like, yeah, brother, we're going after that tag team gold, brother. Like that never happened because yeah. they were too big for that. They were bigger. And so you can't compare you that talk about that's an unrealistic expectation to think that the powers of pain or demolition were going to be at the level of Hogan and Savage. It's just not going to happen. Nobody was. No, that, okay, that is true. Um, but they are building up uh, the eventual match between Powers of Pain and Demolition at WrestleMania. But before that, they have a match on a Wrestling Challenge, which is like the, the B show at that point. But it's without Fuji because WrestleMania was a handicap match. So it, it turned out to be a little taster leading into WrestleMania. And um, I think, it's, like again, this is one of those matches that, it it was prominently placed on the card. I mean, it was a long card. It was about 16, 17 matches, something like that. And unfortunately, in Trump Plaza, in front of that dead crowd of suits and uh, Ivana Trump, who wasn't really that interested in the match. But I've got to say, Monsoon and Ventura, if you go back and watch that match, they work overtime to really make that match probably more interesting than it is. I mean, people are waiting for Fuji to get in there basically and see him get his comeuppance. Um, but I think it also, it probably hurt the tag titles in a way, having a, a handicap match in that sense, or maybe again, Vince may like realize that this wasn't going to be the match that it could have been in his head. Um, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, they probably looked at Fuji at some, as somebody that could really get the heat uh, for the team and really even if he wasn't going to be doing much in the match he could sort of you know get the heat on those guys and you know it, it is a sign I think sometimes of, of maybe lack of confidence when they have to add these bells and whistles to matches um, I'm wondering now it reminds me a little bit although I don't know I think it actually now that I think about it, it was the same situation where we were talking about Wrestlemania 3 where instead of just doing Bulldogs versus Hearts which would have been the no-brainer match in the Silver Dome, it's Bulldogs with um, Tito Santana 
against the Hart Foundation with Danny Davis. And I think that also was partly because of Dynamite Kids, you know, serious health issues and the fact of him not really being able to work anymore. And so, I mean, that that sometimes is a red flag. Although I don't think in this case it was that somebody was hurt. I think it was just maybe that that Vince felt the match needed some spicing up and some kind of like uh, juicing up a little bit, you know. And, and I'm guessing as well, they probably went all around the loop on the house shows. And for WWF audiences, it would have been a draw and probably at least headlined the B cards. Um, you know, anything that Hogan wasn't at uh, or Savage right. being champion at that point. Um, you know, so it, it certainly deserved its place. And it can never be taken away from Powers of Pain that they were in a tag title match when tag title matches mattered at a WrestleMania. Um, but I, kind of after that, because they weren't at SummerSlam that year. Uh, SummerSlam f- felt like a vastly different show to WrestleMania. It's, in my opinion, it's a far better show and fast-moving show. WrestleMania, I think, and it still happens now, there's an importance on it being the biggest, grandest thing, but sometimes it can drag as a result of that, whereas SummerSlam can yeah. be a lot more fast-moving. There can be uh, there can be a lot of blow-off matches at SummerSlam, but they usually have stipulations in, whereas WrestleMania, it's kind of seen, this is the dream match, so it doesn't need any kind of stipulation, but that isn't always necessarily... I mean, that's how it used to be, but it isn't necessarily always the right, right. thing to do. Um so, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I was just rambling there. <laughs> no, but it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, it, it's one of the earliest pay-per-views, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And it comes from the days when they didn't have a calendar full of pay-per-views. So you had this big gap between WrestleMania and SummerSlam in those days, which you would usually have to set up all your hot house show feuds, you know, that would play out all over the circuit on the house shows in those months because there wasn't any big shows. And then in some cases, but not in all, in some cases they would blow them off at SummerSlam. In some cases, it was just a case of you had to be there and that's how it was back then. But sometimes SummerSlam would serve that purpose, you know, to, to follow, to put a, a, you know, a period on those post WrestleMania uh, storylines. I always wonder as well, whether someone like Vince or Pat Patterson or whoever, or Bruce, so, you know, look at, that looked at the tag team division and thought, right, well, if we make Powers of Pain tag team champions, who are the face teams? I mean, demolition rematches, obviously, but who are the other face teams that they could face and have really good high drawing, you know, really action? I, I don't even know if Action Pact was like a, a concern as long as it drew uh, maybe for them at that time. But Powers of Pain went into a feud with the Bushwhackers, and I can't imagine that really being the drawing match that, you know, you would maybe hope that it might have been but um you know there's the rockers uh and the hearts but they also had their own things going because rockers had the rujos sewn up and they were the ones going like 40 minutes at house shows and this is why hogan eventually was happy to do the job for jacques in 97 when he was wcw champion because it was like a thank you for basically setting the tone for these house shows that hogan would have to you know um or, or main eventing these house shows in some cases, because you have to follow Hogan and not kill off the crowd after Hogan's left. Um, and that was according to Jacques on his, uh, on his shoot interview a, a long time ago, uh, which is why Hogan kind of did that favor for him. But, you know, demolition went right into the feud with, uh, with the brain busters at that point. And that seems more appealing 
I guess. And they've, they've all got a background as well. And uh, yes, it led to heat because I think Tully hit smash in the back of the head with the chair. And I think it caused right. some like cervical injury or something like that. But I think having Demolition remain tag team champions, and, and that was over a year at that point, uh, which was... After the the backland period, I guess they weren't really long term. Yes, Hogan, but I mean, and certainly in terms of tag team champions, they weren't really long term tag team champions at that point. Right. Um, that was the record. I don't. That was that, the record for years. Well, that's the thing. I don't think they ever really were long term tag team champions until demolition. Because if you look at like the the sixties and the seventies, the the lineage, there are so many different tag team title reigns that I could tell you all the world champions, all the intercontinental champions, but I would have trouble you know, uh, doing the tag team champions at that point. Well, the WWF, the world tag team title, the one from that era, it goes back to 1971. And before that, they had what they called an international tag team title for a couple of years, which they eventually unified into it. And then their original title in the 60s was the United States tag team title. That was like their big tag team title. And honestly, like the before demolition, because Demolition had the record until New Day broke it for any tag team in the company, a, you know, a title reign. Before them, it was the Valiants. So in the 70s, the Valiants would have been considered because they held the belts for about a year or plus. They, they were definitely long-term. And before them, it would have been the Fabulous Kangaroos in the 60s who held it like three different times for pretty long periods of time. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, the tag team title, because, you know, that world title, was like glacial, you know, like somebody had it and it wasn't going anywhere. But that tag team title, that was the one where you could see it change on the TV tapings. You might see it change in the Philadelphia Spectrum for some reason. And then at the Garden, and it, it was the title that would change a lot, you know, even more often than the Intercontinental one. And you would see certain uh, wrestlers who had that belt have different partners. Tony Gurria had, what, Dean Ho, uh, Larry Zabisco. Zabisco. Yep. Um, and then you had Fuji, who had Saito, but then he had uh, Tanaka as well. And yeah, um, yeah it's, it's an interesting uh, lineage, uh, certainly. So Powers of Pain, uh, like I say, they weren't at SummerSlam, but they remained high in the card because they were a part of DBRC and Zeus's million-dollar team at Survivor Series. They faced Jake the Snake, Demolition, and Hogan. So it was a good way to, I guess, end a lot of... You, you can all... If wrestlers had feuded at that point, it made sense to put them in teams against each other. But I think those early Survivor Series, nothing of consequence ever really come out of them, which is why I think, in my opinion, by like the fourth Survivor Series with Guga and et cetera, it doesn't like stand up for me because the first two Survivor Series are like Rocky 1 and 2 for me. Um, and then the third one is kind of Rocky 3, which is still okay. It's still credible. Lots of big names, etc. But by Rocky Four, um, which is like the overblown crazy one, um, the fourth Survivor Series with the Gooker, and uh, yeah. <laughs> you, it's you know not recognizable I mean. <laughs> to what it originally was. Yes, yes, and then by the fifth Survivor Series, if it didn't have a title match in there with Hogan and Undertaker, um, outside of the Flair match, uh, the eight man tag that Flair became sole survivor for, and that match could have went on for like two hours, and I think people would have been happy with that because it was so good um there wasn't much else going on on that survivor series especially since jake and savage got taken off the card because of the snake bite incident and sid ended up not being on the card and all that but that again whole other conversation so powers of pain after that they're in the royal rumble 1990 and i would argue 
that this is maybe Barbarian's biggest moment of his career where Hogan and Warrior are facing off against each other. It's that classic rumble face-off where they beat each other up for two minutes. The next person to come out is the Barbarian, and he takes his shots against Hogan and Warrior. And that's, again, you, you have to put yourself in the, you know, in the time. That's huge to be able to have the two biggest names in the company just lying there on the floor and having Barbarian just beat them both up for two minutes. Um you know, I don't even know if he remembers that, to be honest, if you asked him. But for me, in terms of exposure and really just having someone look dominant against your two biggest names, I, I would rank that up there as a career highlight for him. Yeah, and he's one of those guys that always had the reputation, like somebody like Haku, who even if he's not the biggest star, he has that reputation in the locker room for being the guy you do not want to mess with. I mean, Barbarian also had that reputation of being, I mean, very nice man. He is a very nice man, but, but potentially dangerous if he wants to be, you know? And so it made sense from that point of view for the people that were in the know and, Oh yeah, the Barbarian, he could beat anybody up, but maybe to the average fan, it might've been this huge shock. Like we don't, we see him as a tag team wrestler and now he has laid waste to the two biggest stars in the company, even for this brief moment of time. Yeah. I, I heard that the only person barbarian was scared of was his wife. Um, <laughs> well, there's the, uh, I don't know. I won't go into that. Oh, here, no, no, but... no, no, please. Let's, let's do it. Let's. Uh... Well, there's the, have you ever heard the? I mean, it's, it's good natured, but the story about miss Atlanta lively. So miss Atlanta lively was a gimmick from Crockett. The famous phrase, you couldn't do it today, right? Very much applies to that. But uh, it was basically, it was Ronnie Garvin. Oh, yes. Okay. And yeah, I, I know the thing. So, <laughs> and he was in drag. It was Ronnie Garvin in drag. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things like the Midnight Rider and Mr. America and, the, and, and Giant Machine, where it's like, okay, everybody kind of knows that this isn't what it is, but the heels are so frustrated because they can't prove it to anybody, you know. But, and Ronnie Garvin told me this story. I asked him and he confirmed it, that it was true, that Barbarian saw him in the locker room in drag and thought that he was a woman and was kind of interested and was and was asking around like, hey, who's the who's the new girl? Who's the new girl? And and Ronnie wanted everybody to go along with it as a rib and nobody told him until actually i don't think ronnie was in on the rib that's what it was nobody and they said let's it'll be a rib on ronnie that nobody will tell barbarian who it really is and it got to the point where barbarian approached him as miss atlanta lively and kind of was making some moves and ron i guess maybe he took the wig off or he did something and he was like barbie it's me it's ronnie it's ronnie garvin and he had no idea and he was apologizing <laughs> profusely you know that he he thought that he was a new you know woman on the roster it's hilarious oh that is amazing uh yeah. yes I, I remember the the classic scene with uh flair um in miss atlanta lively yeah right right yeah. they have a surprisingly great match on one of the starcades it's miss atlanta lively and the midnight express are involved it's just it's because they're in it that it's so great but it's way better than it has any right to be but that's another tangent sorry that's another time so it, it makes you wonder um i mean you may know this better than me but 
Road Warriors was still with WCW in 1990. They were at uh, that Capital Combat Return of Robocop, which, was, I mean, their match was cut out of the VHS, probably because they were gone at that point, but also running time. They like to edit the first four matches off any WCW pay-per-view, but that I mean, was Cactus Jack, Kevin Sullivan, Road Warriors. It's insane that you would cut them off. But it makes you wonder how early on Vince knew that they were potentially coming in because between Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, um, uh, uh, Mr. Fuji sells Warlord's contract to Slick and sells Barbarian's contract to uh, Bobby Heenan. And as a result, Barbarian is at WrestleMania in his powers of pain gear and uh, beats Tito Santana. And uh, one thing that Bobby Heenan said, uh, was, it, was it Rona Barrett at ringside? She was at WrestleMania. I think it was Rona Barrett. Um, but there was someone else at ringside. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, she was at ringside. Uh, and... <laughs> She does not know anything about wrestling. If you watch the Sean Mooney interview with her, she's just out of it. Uh, she's waiting for the check, basically. So yeah. apparently she saw Barbarian's fur ring gear and she thought it looked really nice and she wanted it. And Barbarian was like, no, you can't. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That was in the antler phase of the Barbarian, right? Oh, no, no. It was a little was before still- that. Still in his powers of pain Oh, no, he, he was still yeah. in the powers of pain gear. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, that was the sad thing, though, was that when the Road Warriors were brought in, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's like Vince sort of makes them go solo because of the similarities, I guess, even visually of the two teams. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds about right. I mean, it, you know, that was always the story about something like uh, a team like the Oddities. They were broken up and pretty much discarded once Paul White came in because they didn't want anyone bigger than Paul White being in the company. That was the thing I'd always heard. And it kind of makes mm. sense that Mabel disappeared as soon as Vader came in and uh, and things like that. Um, Interesting. So Warlord was not at uh, WrestleMania 6 at that point, but he got his match again against Tito. You could always rely on Tito um, <laughs> at SummerSlam 90. And Warlord had changed his look by that point. But he, at that point, he didn't have the, the Phantom of the Opera uh, mask. And, uh, you know, Warlord... I've seen pictures where he did, they continued to wrestle in their powers of pain gear until new looks were, were made for them at that point. Um, but he had his scepter, right? The W scepter. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it's a look. I mean, that's the thing went by WrestleMania seven. They, they, had the smart idea to team up uh, barbarian and Haku, but it never really, they weren't the faces of fear yet. When they're in WCW, they look like they could kill you. And I don't think WWF really capitalized on that and had them lose to the Rockers in the opening match at WrestleMania 7. And Warlord also lost to the Bulldog at that point. And I think Warlord, from a story that I'd heard, he knew that the the, the bloom was off the rose at that point and they didn't have any faith in him getting yeah. past that kind of... Uh, that level at that point, which was a shame because well, look at him, you know what I mean? But he has a great look, great look. Amazing. Yeah. You would think he would be tailor made for, you know, a money feud with Hogan and that kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, he's almost like a white Zeus in a way. Like you, you'd think that he could play a role like that. But the interesting thing about the changing of the looks for a lot of these guys, and you may know this if you, if, you know, being a fan of that era of WWF, but like by the very end of the 80s into the 90s, even like into the beginning of the Attitude Era, there was a lot of involvement from corporate creative services department, the department that would design things for the company. 
in creating the looks of the wrestlers. Like they would very much, I don't think it's really done that way anymore, but they would very much storyboard wrestlers looks like the artists who worked for WWE, many of whom I knew, and they would, they would present Vince with ideas and concepts. And some of them were, you know, so terrible that they became infamous, you know, but, (laughs) but I think that that's why you see a lot of those very high concept looks that wrestlers would have from that era because they were being designed by professional artists one of them i interviewed uh on one of the podcasts not long ago called tom fleming he worked from for wwf from 90 to 95 but then worked sporadically throughout the attitude era and a lot of the gear like razor ramon crush uh anyone who wore their logo on their gear and like Adam Baum, et cetera. He was a lot responsible for that. And he invented the, uh, do you know when Lola hit Brett with a scepter at King of the Ring 93? Um, yes. He not only designed the scepter, but made sure it was made out of like a, a papier mache kind of material. And um, he liked to keep some of the things that he designed. And when Lola picks up the ball and just throws it you know into the audience he's just like oh no because <laughs> he's watching the <laughs> view of all of his friends because the thing is as well it gives away the secret that it's not really a heavy solid gold thing encrusted with jewels but uh he was very proud of that but uh yeah <laughs> yeah so, but those people know- have great stories a lot of those people who did that work I, I'm, I'm having one of the women from who worked for a very long time in that department on my own podcast soon uh, named Jeb, Deb Jazway, and she was there for about 15 years through the 90s and early 2000s. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I can't, yeah. can't wait to listen to that. Um, so I can understand as well why, you know, with different attires, etc. I mean, it happens so much now, but Warlord became a very toyetic action figure when he was released by, you know, he was released in his LGN... Uh, God, the name of the company. It was his, his first action figure. There was no Barbarian. Barbarian was going to be made, but then they switched companies to uh, the, you know, to Hasbro, basically. So, you know, and then Warlord. So Barbarian didn't get a figure. Barbarian also didn't get a Hasbro, but Warlord got his uh, single run gear with the Phantom of the Opera mask. And Barbarian didn't seem to get a figure until. And I could be wrong on this, but not not even through WCW. It wasn't until the classic superstars when there were powers of pain separately. I wish they'd have done them as a double pack. Um, and then Barbarian was released in his antlers gear. But this was near the end of the run where they were putting no effort in action figures whatsoever. So it's just brown trunks. Uh, brown boots, brown knee pads, none of the fur or anything. And they used his old Powers of Pain head where it was like shaved on the sides. So instead of like molding new hair, they just painted the bald spots um, mm-hmm. and just made, yeah, it's it's not a great figure. So I'm so glad that Chella are really finally doing the Barbarian justice with uh, his new action figure as well. And not just using the same parts that we used on the Warlord figure as has previously been the case, because they had two very different physiques as well, which uh, people need to remember. But um, so Warlord's gone by 92 and Barbarian would come back as uh, Sione, the uh, the third head shrinker replacing Samu. And um, that was an unfortunately short-lived uh, run. But I mean, it, one of my favorite matches from Rumble 91, which is a sleeper match, is him against Bossman. They, they're, they're two big guys that really knew how to work together and uh, they really got the crowd into it as well. And um, I mean, Warlord, when I met him and I got the picture of him putting the full Nelson on me and all that kind of stuff, because I'm just a mark. Uh, <laughs> he, 
he said he would just stand at the corner and just watch in awe of the barbarian just diving off the top rope for the headbutt or for the elbow drop and stuff like that. And he was just like, right. he, you know, if it wasn't for the barbarian, powers of pain would not have been nearly the team that they were and had the reputation that they had. Uh, not, yeah, he being, was... not just in WWF as well, throughout Crockett and elsewhere. Yeah, because that was a territory too where they really expected you to work your, your butt off. I mean, that, that was very much what they would now call work rate, I guess, you know, oriented company where they really wanted you to just get in there and, and go and work hard. And there was, there wasn't a lot of stalling. There was, there was character work, but I mean, when the bell rang, you were getting down to business and um, barbarian carried that load. A lot of it, there was um, there's a great match. And I don't know if it was a whole house show thing, or if it was just for this one show, but at the, I believe it's at the garden show that has Hogan versus flair on it. at least the first one mm-hmm. um, barbarian wrestles, Kerry Von Eric. If I'm thinking of the same show, it was right around that same time. And of course, you know, Kerry is not in his best shape at this point. It's late 91 and you can sort of tell, but barbarian of all people who, you know, who, unfairly doesn't have enough of a good reputation for this but he carries the match he makes it a great match whereas you might have thought it would have been the other way around you know but it's not especially at this stage of the game for Kerry von eric who's sort of you know really not his heart is not in it you could just tell but barbarian makes it a very enjoyable match for me i always found that because they never really put heat behind the the barbarian in that sort of antlers gimmick which we never really knew what it was he just wore furs he just hunted <laughs> he's a barbarian and, and wore them. He, was, he was a barbarian but that's the thing though they never really went full out with it so when he was in the ring even with Heenan as, as his manager it would be kind of a quiet reaction if you look at like Rumble 91 as well but as the match went on you know and right. you know like you say he was a master at winning people over um because there wasn't really a reason to hate the barbarian except for the fact that Heenan was his manager but when Heenan went into commentary like against Kerry Von Eric you know he like you say would win even the most uh, dejected cynical garden crowd <laughs> over um, and yeah he's, he's amazing and Warlord eventually uh, would go on to uh, be a bodyguard for 50 Cent as well because I mean he, he's All always right. the same and he looks the same now, and they still work indies, and they still look like they could tear your head off. Um, yeah. And when there was a convention in England around 2010, and for various reasons, Barbarian and a few of us couldn't make it, but Warlord was uh, was there. But I would love to have met uh, Barbarian. I'm guessing you've met those two guys. Um, I've met Warlord. I don't believe I've ever met Barbarian now that I think about it. And and my encounters with Warlord was uh, were on indie shows when I was not not even through WWE, but when I was covering indie shows in the New York area when I was kind of college age. This would have been mid 90s. So he had been let go from WWF. I don't know when that would have been exactly. What would you say? Like, was Early, it like? Oh, no, it's last match. Um, 92? Was, it was 92, but he, like Dino Bravo, got brought in for the European tour in April. And his last match in 92 was against Virgil. Don't ask why I know that. <laughs> yeah, uh, last... he, didn't, he, he didn't deserve that. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
Anyway, oh, the, yeah, that that also is the show that has Virgil versus Repo Man, the historic uh, match at Madison Square Garden. It's right up there with Joe Lewis's best matches at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> but but no, uh, but Warlord. So he was gone from um, Warlord was gone from the WWF and he was taking indie dates. And so I saw him um, on some of those in the New York area and he was still using the name warlord, which I guess is because he was using it before WWF, but he was still able to call himself that. And in fact, I think he even still had the whole outfit and everything. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. I mean, maybe left on good terms. Uh, I mean, yeah. it was 92, the, this steroid thing was going on. So, I mean, you know, I'm not, overly surprised that those kind of guys were were gone i mean there is that story that uh sean michaels uh i believe he told mr perfect that uh or <laughs> notorious broid user i mean i'm not saying anything that people don't know i mean i think he would admit to this um and he would get injections in his uh in his buttocks and uh sean michaels jabs the uh, the needle into his muscular behind and the needle snaps and Shawn Michaels goes, well, I guess you're full. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody was, it would have been him. Yeah. I mean, and- it, it, it was a case of, like you said, too, I think part of it was image reasons. They were very mm-hmm. much looking to blow off the heat from all the steroid stuff. And so anybody that really had that look was either shrinking or was gone, you know, and I think they decided maybe that, you know, he wasn't as valuable as, say, like a, you know, a Bret Hart or something, obviously. So instead of, you know, they just sort of cut him. I, that might have been part of it, I guess. I'm sure he'd answer that better than I would. But, yeah. But, um, again, with regards to that line from the late 80s to mid 90s, and, again, a team who had tag title shot at WrestleMania were in a feud with Demolition anyone would tell you that they are up there in terms of a team that needed to be made because there weren't many tag team series made by that company. Uh, Bushwhackers, Rockers, Demolition, uh, uh, Twin Towers, but separately, um, Legion of Doom. The, you know, but you think the Rougeos didn't get made, Beverly Brothers didn't get made. Uh, there were lots. Rhythm and Blues didn't get made. Ancella also making a Rhythm and Blues style Greg Valentine, which is a huge gap in uh, that line because it never got past prototype stage at the moment uh at the time and those who own that prototype not mentioning names paid a lot of money for it and from what i've heard won't even take a picture of the back of the figure because they don't want people replicating the figure uh by knowing whether it has the eagle on the back and stuff like that but um (laughs) yeah so a a, a huge gap and again removable ring gear and the bodies a, a tippy has just went above and beyond because the poses that they have just really accurately represent you know them they're not it's not just the same body from neck to foot they've got different poses they've got different actions and stuff like that uh when uh, because there was a warlord figure back then obviously you know you didn't need anyone to uh, be warlord in figure form but when i was playing with action figures as a kid uh certain names weren't made like barbarian so i had to in my mind this kind of work giant gonzalez was used as the barbarian because he wasn't too tall but he had the dark hair he had the beard and he had the fur so that was my justification for using giant gonzalez as the barbarian uh back then um yeah, this is probably how I felt as a kid with the fact that Star Wars never made a Peter Cushing Grand Moff Tarkin action figure mm-hmm. from the first movie where he where he's actually like the number one heel of the movie over Darth Vader. And they just but never bothered to make a figure. So, you know, we all 
in our various action figure collections have those frustrations absolutely uh, so uh, those pictures are available now and uh, if you think that that is the last announcement for this week don't feel blue there is another announcement uh, being made this week, uh, a very subtle hint there, uh, that will, I believe, come out on Wednesday. So uh, you didn't see me wink at the camera there because this is an audio podcast. But uh, yeah, so I'll let you listen back to that and see what you think. Um, so I want to thank you, Brian, for being a part of this. This has been fun. Like, again, we go in so many different directions. We, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to hopefully doing more. Uh, but once again, where can uh, people find your new podcast? Uh, if you're able to tell me maybe some guests coming up, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Always love a scoop. Sure. And uh, and obviously uh, remind us about the uh, the Chic uh, biography, which is coming soon. Sure thing. Okay, so so the podcast is called Shut Up and Wrestle. Like you mentioned, it is part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network, which carries uh, most famously carries Jim Cornette's podcast, among many others. And uh, you can find it wherever you get podcasts. But the main website is suawpod.com that's the actual website for the podcast but it's on spotify it's on google podcasts apple podcasts is i think probably where most people find it um podbean places like that so you know the idea is it's an old school themed wrestling podcast that's meant to be very conversational that's why i want to have people on there that i already have a good friendship with or knowledge of because we don't have, you know, we can just talk as friends. So I've had, for example, I had Stu Sachs, who was the former publisher of Pro Wrestling Illustrated for many years. I had um, Keith Elliott Greenberg, who you know, who, uh, you know, uh, who we were able to share a lot of wrestling WWE magazine experiences together. I had the Blue Meanie on, which was always, it's always fun to talk to him. And um, the new one, I, it may actually come out before this. I'm not totally sure. I'm having Dave Drayson, Supermouth Dave Drayson, a.k.a. Dave Brzezinski, who was the last manager of The Sheik. And so he's got a lot of memories and things. Um, future ones, I've got uh, Les Thatcher, who, you know, has done it all in the wrestling business. He was a coach. He was a wrestler. He was an announcer. He was a booker, everything. Mm. Um, he, he'll be coming on. I've got uh, uh, Jeff Walton, who was who was one of the head uh, creative people in the Los Angeles wrestling territory back in the day. Um, people like that. Like I mentioned, my friend, Deb Jazway, who was a creative designer for WWE for years, just people that have interesting stories. So, you know, I, I would hope people check it out. It's gotten off to a really hot start. Um, and I'm, I know I mentioned Dave Drayson with the Sheik, which ties into my book. So the book is um, uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And the, the, um, the print and digital copies can be pre-ordered on Amazon or even barnesandnoble.com or wherever you, you know, order books online. You can pre-order. It comes out April 12th, but the, the pre-orders will guarantee that you get it in case that in case their stocks sell out and things like that. So I would advise people to pre-order. It's already, it is the number one wrestling book on amazon it's happened twice isn't it yes twice <laughs> just based on the pre-orders like wow. it, it's above the john moxley book which just won the wrestling observer award for for book of the year mm. so you know i i couldn't be more excited i'm recording the audiobook myself i signed the contract i'm going to be doing it at the end of march and so the audiobook probably so it doesn't cannibalize the print book sales it's probably not going to be out till the summer that would be my guess but there is also going to be an audiobook too 
That's great. And and I've heard certain audiobooks where they go off script a little bit here and there. Do you think that might happen? There's like things come to mind or are you just like, you know, I'm a, I would be afraid to do that. I'm going to be honest because <laughs> I, I'm going to I've never done an audiobook before. I was they, they were saying how, you know, uh, ECW Press, who's publishing the book, they were they have uh, an affiliate called Tantor Media, who's sort of like they're licensed to do audiobooks for ECW Press's books Mm -hmm. but they get to pick and choose the ones they want to do and they chose the sheet book and i was told ecw press and myself have no creative control over how they do it who they hire what they do so i said look i understand i accept that i agree to it it's fine i would humbly suggest that they be (laughs) open to the possibility of having me do it because i know the stuff i do a podcast i'm comfortable speaking and everything like i know what's important and so they brought me on board, but I've never done one before. So I'm going to be kind of following their lead and we'll see how it goes. I'm already debating in my head whether I'm going to do voices or not. So I was going to we'll, ask we'll see. that. Yeah, I was <laughs> actually going to ask that. Like, dare you do that or not? Um, if, if you want a, a fun uh, example of uh, someone who is a voiceover artist, there's a UK uh, sitcom called Toast of London. Um, if you've never seen it, uh, type it in on YouTube and find the pieces of him in the vocal booth because he does lots of session work and he gets asked to do the most ridiculous things. And uh, yeah, it's very, very funny. But you may, you know, uh, it may prepare you for some of the uh, <laughs> the uh, the demands of uh, producers and uh, people who work behind the glass and stuff like that. So you we'll know. see. Yeah. yeah, maybe they'll have like some great outtakes of me, like like the Orson Welles outtakes or like the famous William Shatner ones. You ever hear those? Where no, he's I like, have not. <laughs> oh, they're they're famous, and so we'll see. I'll I'll try to be far less arrogant than they were in the recording booth. We'll see. They tell me that the audio book is going to be about fourteen hours long, so I'm going to be in there for like seven different days, like full length days doing this. So. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, lots of cough drops and um, I know. Yeah, all that kind of thing. Uh, gargle water beforehand and all that kind of thing. As a someone, I'm not a vocalist, but I have sang uh, on stage, so you know that's that's about as much as I. You know, if it improves sales, um, and someone goes, you can tell he gargled water before doing that. Then you just only have to give me ten percent of the sales. Um, <laughs> so. That'll okay that's a deal that sounds be fine. fine only based on that review though uh solely um <laughs> so yes thank you again i really appreciate it do check out cellotoys.net for all the latest news regarding the new announcement that is coming out tomorrow as the show goes up as well as the the powers of pain figures and all the pre-orders that are, are coming up and you can find me at uh, turnchuckle on instagram if you want to f- see pictures of my cats and me you know, uh, spouting about various obscure pieces of WWF memorabilia that a lot of people don't wouldn't even bother to collect. That's the thing. I like the stuff that no one cares about. Everyone wants T-shirts and pay-per-view hats and stuff like that. I like, you know, um, a random trading card from. Well, no, actually, no trading cards are in as well. Um, no, I can get obscure than that. Hulk Hogan bubble bath and stuff, um, which I believe is the name of a song by a band called Ash as well. <laughs> they have a song called Hulk Hogan bubble bath. But uh, again, we what a go great off. name. <laughs> I'll show you the Hulk Hogan bubble bath and the Bushwhacker talc that I have as well. That exists. Um, oh, and Bret Hart soap on a rope. That exists as well. Um, I mean, were you ever like, what's the most like piece of WWF memorabilia where you've just been like, that's too stupid. <laughs> oh man. Um, you know what? I have, I remember seeing things and thinking that with them, 
I'm not sure. Oh, you know what? You know what always used to catch my eye? And you know what they did with um, how they used to have the Superfly Snooker foam I love you hands. Mm-hmm. You ever seen those? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they had so, them on the primetime set because they would always decorate the set with various pieces right. of memorabilia as well. Yeah. Because Superfly would do the I love you. So basically, the story was that, you know, Superfly's gone. And um, when they're giving Bret Hart a big push, somebody as a singles wrestler, <laughs> I've seen somebody, <laughs> yes, somebody decided, well, what if you started doing this in the ring? Because we have this, I don't know how they make those things, but whatever it was, whether it's a mold or like a cutter or whatever the hell it is that was made for the snooker ones. And they were like, we're just going to make it black foam with pink paint on it. And, you know, this will be your thing now. And there's a brief moment in time, like like 91 ish where Brett is doing this. I'm sorry, you can't see, but he's doing like, the I love you sign with the horn hands yeah. in every match and like on the turnbuckles, like Snooker would do for no reason. And then they eventually got rid of them and they came out with a different foam thing for him, which was like a crosshairs, mm-hmm. like a hitman. But, but that, so that was one of the weirder, obscure things. I remember seeing it and going like, isn't that just the Snooker thing? What, what are they doing? That is wonderful. Oh, that's so cool. I don't know if that's ever been told on the internet unless you've told it somewhere else. So that's, um, I've never, I've never talked about it. Yeah. But the, the Bret Hart, I love you foam hands. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, we're going to do so much on merch as well. See, you've got all this incredible knowledge of all the territories and stuff. And when you get your guy from LA, I want tons of Freddie Blassie questions because I'm such a huge Blassie uh, fan. We did Um, it. We did it already. It's in the can. And we did talk a lot about Blassie because he was, before he even got into wrestling, he was the president of the Freddie Blassie fan club. So, wow. Oh, he was a kid out there. Yeah. Oh, that's that's superb. I never do birthday posts on Instagram, but I have Blassie's albums and I have a signed eight by 10. And I remember when his uh, wife, when he passed away in 03, we talked about this because you did the magazine um, on our first thing. And she was selling his gear and his jackets and stuff like that. And I was just like, oh, I had the money, like his canes and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wonderful stuff. I can't wait to listen to that. So anyway, before we just go into the night, um, I want to thank everyone for checking out this edition of the official Cello Toys podcast. Tune in for more coming up very soon and we will see you all next time. 